Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. It says, In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord, and they sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, Thus says the Lord their God, On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things that your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. Now we're going to take some time to unpack some of the stuff that's here in this passage, and hopefully we'll continue on and get a little bit further in chapter 20 tonight as well. But as I read to you the first three verses, did anybody as I was reading that think to themselves, boy, this sounds familiar? Didn't you, did, you, did some of it? I remember when I actually began to study and start reading, I knew we were on to chapter 20 next, but as I did, I thought, didn't we already cover this? And I thought I was having a senior moment where I was just doing something I'd done before, because we've all done that. Actually, go back to chapter 14 and look at verses 1, 2, and 3, and you'll see the similarities between chapter 20's beginning and chapter 14's beginning. In chapter 14, if you remember, said, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set stum the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? And so that's why it sounds similar. There was a time earlier that the elders came and God spoke to, to them through Ezekiel. This time, though, this is around 591 B.C. The, the, the first year of their uh, exile was 597, or the, the year of this group's exile in Ezekiel's ex exile was 597 B.C., this is around seven years later, in 591 B.C., and the certain elders of Israel were coming to inquire of the Lord. In other words, they were saying, what's God saying about our future? You know, as they're in captivity, their thing was, hey, how long is this going to be? What, you know, what, what's going to be happening next? And God tells them through Ezekiel of his frustration with them, seeking his counsel. 
since they as a nation have rejected it all throughout their history. In other words, God said, they really want to hear what I have to say? They want to know what, what's coming next? They haven't listened to me ever. Why do they want to hear from me now? They've never listened. And what I want to do is I want to walk you through a small study tonight to show you that whenever we come to God, the first thing he's going to do is deal with our motives. Whenever we approach God with a request, the first thing he's going to deal with is our motives. Go with me to uh, John chapter 6. Look at verses 22 through 27. John chapter 6, starting in verse 22, says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. That's the feeding of the 5,000 story that had just happened prior to this. So when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into their boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you hate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. You see, in this situation, he just fed the five, group of 5,000 plus. He sends the disciples out on the boat, and he goes up on the mountain to pray. In the middle of the night, he walks across the water. They get to the other side. The people are like, you know what? There was only one boat, and Jesus wasn't in it, but they're not here. They got in their boats, went to find Jesus, and when they got there, they said, Lord, Lord what are you doing here? How'd you, how'd you get here, Jesus? Acting all innocent, and he goes, I know why you're really here. You're not here because of the miracle that you saw. You're here because you got your belly filled, and you're hoping I'll do it again. He knew their hearts. Go to John chapter 18. Look at verses 33 through 34. As, as we continue to look at these passages, let me just remind you, when you come to God, He knows the real reason why you're coming to Him. John chapter 18, look at verses 33 and 34. Jesus is standing before Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? In other words, why are you calling me king of Jews? Because you think I am? Or did you hear someone else call me that? Why are you using that term? If you were to go back, I'm not going to have you turn there and look at John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. The scripture says that when Jesus saw, many of the people saw the miracles Jesus did, many believed in his name. But the next verse says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in the heart of man, and he didn't need man to testify about man. Folks, I just wanted to tell you, over the years, I've learned this from the scriptures and personal experience. When we come to God, the first thing he's going to deal with is, why are you coming? Go, you'll see what I mean. Go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And then you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. By the way, um, in the King James, those of you who have King James translation, we used to always jokingly say that James chapter 4, verse 3 was proof that God was a male and not a female because it says you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss. Think about it. 
That's the King James translation. But, but, but here's the thing. Look at what he says. You, some of you are missing stuff because you haven't asked. Others of you have asked, but you didn't receive. Why? Because he knew the real reason why you asked. And you were desiring to use it for your own purposes and not his. You see, well, the scripture says if we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, we have the thing we've asked for. But did you catch that little clause in there? According to his will. And so, folks, I just want you to understand is they said, hey, what's, what's God got to say? The elders came to him and said, what's God got to say? God says, why are they inquiring of me? Why all of a sudden do they want to know what I have to say? Are they repentant? Because I've told them what I have to say for their entire history, and they haven't listened. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus is speaking, he says, This people honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Well, how did he know? How did he know? That was a question, by the way. He's God. And if you know from Psalm 139, David says, Lord, before a word is even on my tongue, before a thought's even on my tongue, you know it completely. He knows everything. He knows even our motives. But now listen closely. Don't let that keep you from seeking God because in our seeking God and him dealing first with our reasons for seeking him, it'll be a teaching moment. It'll be a time of growth. If your motives are impure, he'll show you and he'll show you for your best and, for, and he'll correct you in love. And then he'll show you the right way to ask and have the right heart so that he can give it to you. As an earthly parent, don't you want to bless your kids? In the same way, your heavenly Father desires to bless you as well. But at the same time, as we see in the passages we've looked at, when we come to him, he's first going to clarify in our hearts, he already knows, the real reason why we're coming. And when it becomes pure, when it lines up with his will, you got it. You got it. All right? Go back to Ezekiel chapter 20 now. Look at verses 4 through 11. I'm not going to reread them to you, but in verses 4 through 11, God begins to recount Israel's rebellious history as a nation. In verses 4 through 11, he talks about how they worshipped idols in Egypt and how God wanted to utterly destroy them there, but he refrained from doing so because of his glory. You'll see that pattern all the way through this whole thing. I was going to wipe you all out, but because of my great name, I won't do it. Because he knew that if they all died, the promises he had made would never be fulfilled and he would not get the glory that he desires. And it would look bad for him. In verses 12 through 17, it says that he brought them out into the wilderness to teach them to walk with him and to trust completely in him. Don't miss that. Let me say it to you again. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Why did he lead them into the wilderness? To teach them to trust him, to walk with him and to trust him. Folks, it wasn't an accident that when God led them out of slavery, he took them straight into the wilderness. Now, if you were to go back and look at a study at Ezekiel, sorry, Exodus chapter 13, you'll see the first thing he says is this. He said, I could have taken you the short route to the promised land, but you would have had to go through Philistine country, and you would have experienced war, and you weren't ready, and your hearts would have wanted to go back to Egypt. By the way, does God know his kids or what? Because even though he didn't take them through the Philistine country where they were going to experience war, but took them out into the wilderness where they couldn't find their way back, what did they say? We want to go back to Egypt. But they weren't ready. Then later on, 
In chapter 33, he says again, he says, when I bring you into the land, as I'm about to bring you in, when I bring you in, I'm not going to wipe out all the nations in front of you all at once, because that actually wouldn't be good for you. Because if I wiped them all out at once, as much as you would probably love that, the wild animals would increase, and they'd be too numerous for you. And for your own safety, I'm not going to have the land be all desolate, because by the time you move into it, the wild animals would be something you'd have to deal with. Which, by the way, I forgot to tell you, Becky, as we were closing the garage, a snake went in the garage tonight. So we have to deal with that when we get home tonight. So Elise and I tried to chase it out, but it went in. So there's a surprise for us in the garage on the way home. All right. Now, at the same time, God led them in the wilderness so that they would trust him and completely lean on him. He, now look closely at what he says in this passage. He said he even gave them Sabbaths for their good, but they still had hearts for their idols. And God once again spared them of their utter destruction that they deserved. That's what he talks about in verses 12 and following. Now, if you remember, in Egypt, they were worshiping idols. He brought them out so that they would, what, worship him. When they're out there and he takes them to the mountain, Moses is up on the mountain with him. They don't know what happens to Moses because he's up there for a few days. What did they immediately do? Make us a God that we can. And then after having seen God bring them out, do the miracles in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea and all that, they said when they built the golden calf, this is what brought you out of Egypt. You can understand why God would have the desire to say, I'm going to wipe you all out. But he doesn't. Why? For the sake of his great name. Now, because of the promise he made. We're going to chase a rabbit tonight. You've heard me tell you in years past and over and over, I don't encourage chasing rabbits when you preach unless you can catch them. And if you catch them, they taste good. We're going to chase a rabbit tonight because it's catchable and it tastes awesome. There's something in here in verses 12 and following that God says to them. Look at verse 12. It says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. You'll notice all the way through this whole history that we've read already, he keeps pointing out two main things. I gave you Sabbaths, but you ignored them. I wanted to wipe you out, but I didn't. That's a continual pattern through this. So what I want to do tonight is I want to do a little side study on the Sabbath. All right? In verse 12, God says that he gave his Sabbath so they might know that he is the God who sanctifies them and that that was to be a sign between they, the nation of Israel, and him. All right, so the first time you ever see any mention of a Sabbath is in Genesis chapter 2. Go to Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> now you're going to say, Jim, the word Sabbath's not here. But yes, later on you'll see that the scripture refers back to this example. So that's how we have scriptural proof that this is the first evidence of a Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, listen to what it says. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, did God rest because he was tired? So there has to be something to this that God makes this day a special day. Interestingly enough, you don't see a Sabbath mentioned for 2,500 years. The next time you see the Sabbath mentioned or a Sabbath mentioned is in the wilderness when God 
is dealing with the nation of Israel in that time that he was teaching them to follow him and to walk with him. Just like we read, if you remember back in Ezekiel, he says, when they were in the wilderness, I gave them my Sabbaths. Now, there were two things in verse 12 as to why he did it. What were they? I gave them my Sabbath so that they'd be what? So they would realize what? That I'm the God who sanctifies them and as a sign between me and them. That's important. All right. So when's the next time we see a Sabbath? Go to Exodus chapter 16. Many of you would say, well, it's in the Ten Commandments. Actually, the Ten Commandments, as you're about to see, is not when we see the, the next time we see a Sabbath, but they had actually been given the Sabbath prior to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 16, look at verses 22 through 30. In Exodus 16, starting in verse 22, this is when they're gathering the manna. It says, On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it, find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath day. Therefore, the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So the first time we see the Sabbath is in Genesis chapter 2 where God rested. And then not until Exodus 16 do we see it mentioned again. But then it's when they're gathering the manna. And if you remember, he told them, gather enough for today. Don't store it up. And people that did that, what happened to the leftovers? It rotted. It stunk. But on the sixth day, they gathered like they were told to, more than a day's worth. They were to eat whatever they wanted, and the, what was left over didn't stink or have worms in it. Because God says, I've given you a day of rest. All right? Now, go to Exodus chapter 20, and look at chap chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, and the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, what's that first word? Well, how could they remember something they'd never been told? But he had already told them. You see, the Sabbath had been given to them in Exodus 16. In Exodus 20, he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, or your son or your daughters, your male servant or your female servant, or livestock, or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now we can, that's our proof that Genesis 2 was referring to a Sabbath because the scripture ties it to Genesis chapter 2. So the first time we see a Sabbath is when God himself rested from his work. The next time we see it is when they're gathering the manna and he says, on the sixth day, gather twice as much because the next day is going to be a day where I don't want you to work. I want you to rest. It's a day that's special and holy to the Lord. And then in chapter 20, in verses 8 through 11, he says in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy because it's a picture of something. It's a picture of something. 
And as you remember what we just read in Ezekiel 20, I gave them the Sabbaths that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And it's to be between me and them. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. Now let me clarify something because there's been a lot of bad teaching on the Sabbath over the years. The Sabbath was a gift to them. Did you catch that? I gave you the Sabbath. It was a gift. It was supposed to be a day in which they rested and did no work. Too many people see its purpose as a day to worship. But actually, if you do a real study of the scriptures, you'll realize that in the history and in the timetable for the nation of Israel and all their feast days and Sabbaths, there were only like three or four Sabbaths in the whole year were special days of worship. But every Sabbath wasn't a day of worship. It was a day of what? It was a day of rest. Because our flesh wants so much credit and points over the years, we have even turned the Sabbath into a day of worship. Because we're going to honor the Sabbath and we're going to worship God. And that sounds real good. But God said, I didn't give you the Sabbath to worship. I gave you the Sabbath to rest. Oh, and by the way, who was the Sabbath for? Between who and who? Between God and Israel. It was to be a sign between him and them. It was never, ever, ever supposed to be something that the church had to follow the Sabbath laws. Go to Colossians chapter 2 and you'll see what I mean. I grew up in a home, unfortunately, that taught that the Sabbath, Sunday was the Sabbath, and Jeff, you'll testify to it. We weren't even allowed to read the funny papers until after church. We weren't allowed to do anything that was fun. We had to play like board games, you know, if we were to do anything recreational. And it was a day that was meant, you dreaded Sunday. You dreaded it. Oh, by the way, the Sabbath day wasn't even supposed to be the first day of the week. But we had turned it into Sunday was the, may ever else been taught that Sunday was the Sabbath and you weren't allowed to do anything and all those laws? Listen, how come nobody ever preached from Colossians chapter 2 verse 16? Look at what it says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. We'll get into that in a little bit more. But here the scripture is clear. The Sabbath wasn't something for the church to do. The Sabbath was something between God and Israel. It was a gift to them, but it was also going to be a sign between them and God. But it wasn't ever for the church. And how many of us were raised on all the legalistic regulations in the Sabbath when the scripture clearly said it was a shadow of the things to come, the realities found in Christ, and we've, unfortunately, what's that? We have the reality. Oh, you're, we're getting there. That's where it's going. We're getting there. Go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? First of all, we've got to stop. There's something hilarious here. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field. They're walking through a grain field. And the Pharisees just happened to be there. What were they doing? Following him. Well, they're looking for some way that he's going to mess up. And his disciples, as they're walking through the grain field, 
plucked a couple of heads, you know, they did this, blew away the chaff, ate the grain. All of a sudden the Pharisees, we got them, we got them now. They've broken the Sabbath laws because that's working. They have harvested, they have threshed, and they, they already broke. Folks, what happened was is the Pharisees took what God said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they made up over 300 laws as to what could or could not be done on the Sabbath. You know, it's crazy. Like, for example, one of them is you weren't allowed to tie a knot on the Sabbath unless it could be untied with one hand. If it was a knot that you could untie with one hand, then it was a legal knot to tie because it wasn't that much work. But if it took two hands to untie it, you couldn't tie that kind of a knot. Devout Jews today who still don't understand what the Sabbath is about will tear enough sheets of toilet paper on Friday night for Saturday. Yes, because you, if you have to go on Saturday, you don't tear toilet paper. That's work. So you pre-tear it the night before. It's crazy, some of the laws. And they had decided that, oh, they broke the laws. They're harvesting. They're working on the Sabbath. Look at what goes on in verse 25. And Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He said, look, guys, the Sabbath was made as a gift for man. It was, man wasn't made to meet the Sabbath laws. The Sabbath was a gift. God gets into them as he think, goes over their history. I kept, I gave you Sabbaths. I gave you Sabbaths. I gave you Sabbaths. He's saying, these are good things I gave you, but you profaned them. Now, go back to Exodus 31, because in Exodus 31, God clarifies the purpose of the Sabbaths. In Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. In Exodus 31, starting in verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So here we see it again. You're to teach them. The Sabbath was given to you as a gift, and it's a sign between me and you, and it also is my way of showing you that it's me who sanctifies you. In other words, he said, I've designed a day in which you do nothing, and I will provide for you. You do nothing, and I will provide for you. That was the picture of the Sabbath. Didn't we read in Colossians chapter 2? That was a shadow of the things to come. The reality has been found in who? In Christ. Folks, how are we sanctified by God? How are we made holy? 
by not striving to do anything in our own strength to be made right with God, but to rest in the fact that He will do it for us. The problem was, they didn't really trust Him. And so their thinking was, if I don't work, I might not make enough. Has anybody ever noticed that the longest lines at the drive throughs or at the food court in the mall or at Chick-fil-A? But they don't open on Sunday, not because they're keeping Sabbath laws, but they're showing that there's a day in which they're not going to open their business because they're going to trust that God will make it all work out. They're trusting in God to provide for them, and so they're Attitude is, we're not even going to work on one of the busiest days possibly of the year where people are all out of their house and all this stuff, where we could make a lot of money. We're going to trust that God will take care of our company without us having to have an extra day of work to make the... And by the way, has God not blessed that company everywhere? Good grief, they're wrapping around the buildings twice on the days they're open, and you just don't even want to get in some of those lines. It's crazy, but God's showing, I will bless those who trust completely in me. But it was a picture, it was a picture of doing nothing but trusting in God's provision for sanctification. That was the point. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 3. It was, in Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to read starting in verse 7. The Hebrew writer explains it a little bit more and starts to tie together the Sabbath rest with salvation. In Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you harden, hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence, firm to the end. And it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And who, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. What was the root of their disobedience? They didn't believe God. When he brought them to the promised land, and said, go on in, I'm going to take care of you. He's been telling them all along, I'm going to send you in a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to provide for you, and you're going to be blessed. They went there, and they put a committee together to go research it. The committee came back, and two of them said, hey, this is great. God said it. Yeah, there's going to be some trials, but we're going to make it. God said it. That's Caleb and Joseph, and son Joshua. And the other said, oh, man, there's no way. And they voted no because they really didn't believe that God would do what he said he would do. How did they profane his Sabbath? They didn't trust him. So they tried to work every day to provide for themselves. And folks, we got to be careful and we got to be honest because many of our churches today don't even know what it means to walk by faith and listening to what God's saying and to trust Him. And we make all our decisions on whether or not we can afford it. Is it in the budget? And we don't think we can make this work. But God said He would do it if we trust Him. 
Yeah, but we just don't see how we can do it. Many of us miss out on so many blessings of God because we don't trust him. The lady that we're working with for this cruise was showing us different ways that we could use this Bible cruise as a fundraiser for just a preacher. We're like, no, give those benefits to the people. That's why we don't sell our books. You got money, great. If not, don't worry about it. We never want to say to somebody, you, you only can hear God if you have enough money. That's why we give away the CDs and everything's free. Why? Because we're not trying to take care of ourselves and make sure we cover our expenses because God has said that he will provide for us and he'll meet all of our needs. And so our attitude in this ministry is just trust him and watch what he does. And we have not lacked. He loves to show off on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Am I human? Are there times that I start to do the math and figure out we might run out pretty soon? Of course. But those are those times that he tests me and shows me my heart and what's in my heart. But when we ultimately say, Lord, no, my trust is in you. I'll do what you say. He comes through. And he said to them, the Sabbath, the Sabbath's purpose was for them to understand that he would provide for them everything they need. And he'd be the one who sanctifies them. You don't have to work in order to be saved. There's nothing you have to do in order to be saved. It's all being done by him. Keep reading. Therefore, verse chapter 4 of Hebrews. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as, as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice and do not harden your hearts. If, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains still a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Did you catch what he's saying? He said that since David wrote after, long after they entered into the promised land, that God spoke through him today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The offer of rest must not have been referring to getting into the promised land. The promised land was a picture of that rest. And they didn't enter in, not because of disobedience, but their disobedience was rooted in the fact that they didn't believe God. And all along, the Sabbath was just a picture to them of, you do nothing, I sanctify you. You do nothing, I will provide for you. And it's pointing to Christ. And that offer still exists today, folks. And then what did we do with the Sabbath that was supposed to be a picture of no work and resting and trusting in Christ and thanking God for his provision? 
we turned it into a legalistic, ritualistic, you got to follow these rules, and then we patted ourselves on the back because we thought we had done pretty good. I did. I remember years ago when I was a young, young boy, and my dad was pastor of a local uh, little town, in, uh, pastor in church, uh, church in a little town in New Hampshire. I worked one Sunday afternoon after church at a grocery store, and I was bagging groceries. And this lady comes through the line, and uh, she says to me, aren't you the preacher's kid? And I said, yes, ma'am. And the whole time I'm bagging her groceries while she's having this conversation with me. And she said, well, what are you doing working on a Sabbath? So I quickly started taking the stuff out of her bag. She goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I shouldn't be doing this. She goes, no, bag mine, bag mine. We we've totally missed the whole point. The Sabbath, first of all, wasn't for the church to follow. It was a day that was to be a picture between Israel and God of Jesus, and that he's the God who sanctifies them because they don't work for their salvation. He provides it. Isn't that cool? I hope you guys have lots of days of rest. Hopefully you're experiencing the rest that God gives us of knowing that we're saved. Now, Go back to Ezekiel, chapter 20. Let's read the next section. Ezekiel, chapter 20, verses 18 through 32. God says, And I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules, and keep my Sabbaths holy that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They didn't walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes which were not good and rules by which they couldn't have life, and I defiled them through their very gifts and their offering up all their firstborn, that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, in this also your fathers blasphemed me by dealing treacherously with me, treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then wherever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, What is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day, which means high place. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after these detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer your, up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. Now, i got to be honest with you. As we break down the last part of this in the time we have left, everything in me wants to get to verse 33. Come back next week. Verse 33 and following is going to be awesome because you're about to see, as God has just finished saying, 
You want to be like the other nations? That's never going to happen. I'm not going to ultimately let it happen. And we'll deal with that in just a second. But in verse 33, God's going to say that with wrath and outstretched hand, he is going to gather the Jews and he's going to make them worship him. In the last days, at the end of the tribulation period, he's going to get control and he's going to make their hearts what they're supposed to be. By the way, that's the only way it happens. The only way that happens is if God does it for us, correct? Anybody here worshiping God because you finally figured it out? No. You're there because he did it. He drew you. He opened your eyes. He did the work of salvation in your heart. You had a responsibility to respond, but every one of us that has responded in faith can look at everybody in the eye and say, yeah, I responded, but God did it. He's the one who gets the glory. I'm not saved because I figured something out and other people didn't. I'm saved because God did a work in my heart. And the reason I'm who I am and where I am today is because of him. And we'll get to that next week. But let's look closely in the time we have left at the verses that we have here. Verses 18 through 24, God then goes on and says, not only did he speak to the people in the wilderness, he even spoke to the children of the parents in the wilderness, telling them not to follow the idols of their fathers, but they did just as their parents had done. And God once again kept them from a deserved utter annihilation, but he told them that they would be scattered and exiled from the land because of their disobedience. In other words, he said he knew what was going to happen, and because of the fact that you're going to do like your fathers, when you get into the land, you're going to go after idols, I'm going to scatter you to all the nations because of that. In verses 25 through 32, it's kind of hard for us to grasp. We've already touched on it earlier in our study from another chapter where we jumped over here, but he talks about how he gave them statutes which weren't good and rules by which they couldn't have life, and he defiled them through their gifts and their offering up their firstborn, that he might devastate them, and he did it that they might know that he is the Lord. In other words, what he said was this. I kept giving them my rules and my statutes by which they would live. If they would just trust me and just do what I said, not because they lived because they followed the rules, but just by trusting me and doing what I said, that's where the blessing comes because they're trusting him. Because they wouldn't. I let them follow the gods that they wanted to follow that weren't me. Oh, by the way, what did those gods require? Child sacrifice and all this stuff. They weren't going to give them life. I gave it to them. You want that? Go right ahead. You want, you want to run with Satan? Go run with Satan. You want your fill? Go ahead. Remember the prodigal son story? The son says, Dad, I don't want to wait till you die to get my inheritance. What does the father say? Here's the money. Go. It's the only way you're going to understand. I'm going to let you go to get the experience. So he let them do all that was involved in worshiping their idols so that they would see that he was God and that he was right. He was not a God who made them offer up their firstborn children, even though they did all, even though they did all that their idols requested. What happened? What happened when they did everything their idols requested? Their crops failed and everything fell apart. Jump with me back to Hosea chapter 2. Oh, they wanted to. Go to Hosea chapter 2. Start in verse 1. He says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead with her, for she's not my wife, and I'm not her husband. Remember, God had divorced Israel because of their sin. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and make her as the day in which she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I'll also have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, and she's who has conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, and my oil and my drink. 
Therefore I will hedge, her, hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. And she didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts and her new moons and her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. God says, I was the one that was providing for them all along. They kept giving credit to their Baals and their idols. So what I did then was, I then just stopped blessing. By the way, the, the young man who got his inheritance and went off and spent it, what happened to it? Did it give him the happiness that he thought it was going to give? And God said, that's what I did for them. I, I gave them rules and things that, that couldn't give them life. In other words, they wanted that. I just let them go that way. And they experienced the fact that, you know what? I'm God, not these idols. I'm the one who provides, not all this stuff they thought was going to make them happy. And that's why we see in Hosea, in the last days, they're going to return to the Lord. They're going to go back to him. But that's next week's message. Folks, as we close tonight, I want to just read to you a bunch of scriptures in the nine minutes we have left. Listen closely to what I'm saying to you because this applies to us today. God is a jealous God. Those with whom he is called to himself, he will never lose. Even if he has to chastise us in the process. Listen to what the scripture has to say. I'm going to just read to you a bunch of scriptures. I'm going to read this to you again, and then we're going to look at some scriptures. God is a jealous God. Those with whom he is called to himself, he will not lose, even if he has to chastise us in the process. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Pretty clear, don't you think? There's lots of people that try to say, you can lose your salvation. I think the most, there's so many scriptural evidences that you can't. I think the greatest proof is right there. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He'll never cast out. So the scripture is very clear. If he's called you to him and you've come to him, you're his and he'll never cast you out. But go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we left off in verse 3 earlier tonight. But look at James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously 
over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But God gives more grace, folks. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Folks, in the same way in which God took the nation of Israel through times of trials to show them what you're looking for is not going to bring you joy. It's only going to be me. There are times in the life of believers that God puts us through trials. Why? It's to increase our faith, to increase our knowledge of Him, to increase our trust in Him. But what do we do as well when we come to those times of trial where God is shaping or pruning or trying to get our attention because we've turned away from Him in some way or another? What do we normally do? We say, where's God? Or we come up with ways in our own flesh to fix it. Maybe if I do this, or maybe I have a garage sale, or you know, maybe I need get another part-time job. And we've all had these thoughts of, how can I fix it? When all along the scripture, God has said, look, I will take care of all the needs of my children if they'll just trust in me. What does he teach us to do? He actually teaches us to be generous and to give. I found over the years, in those times that we were being taken through one of those times of lean, leanness where God was testing and shaping and teaching us to trust Him more, in those times as we prayed, Lord, what you have us do, many times He challenged us to give more. Sounded crazy, didn't make sense to us, but in every one of those instances, I can look you right in the eye and say, every time that we did what He said and did the stupid thing and wrote a check and when we were losing money, we came out better on the other end. And He's always provided. Why? He's looking for those who trust him. But again, I'm not saying just write a check in hopes that God will pay off your mortgage, as some preachers are saying. No, you've got to know what he's told you to do. Faith doesn't begin until you've heard God speak. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. You're in the book of James. Back up real, just a couple of pages probably for some of you. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verses 5 through 11. He said, and you've forgotten the exhortation. Some of your translations say encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline or the teaching or the shaping of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves. Anybody feeling loved by God right now? And He chastises every son whom He receives. The NIV will say punish. I don't like that translation. God doesn't punish because Jesus has already been punished for all our sin. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Now for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Folks, if you're his child, you're going to continually go through the process of God shaping you to trust him. Come through health issues, come through financial issues, it come through relational issues. I actually got a text from somebody that a lot of you in this room know. Uh, um, just now, as I've been teaching here, I got a text from my friend Chris Fadden that his mother just passed away 20 minutes ago. We all go through these things. But God has a purpose. Is he casting you off? No, he'll never do that. 
but he's teaching you through everything to rest in him and not in your own strength. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. God says, so be zealous and repent. If you're not being shaped by God right now, you're not his. If you're not being shaped by God right now, you're not his. Two last passages that I have found in this study that I can't wait to close with. Go to Psalm 94. Psalm 94, verses 8 through 14. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord. He knows the thoughts of man, that they're but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Go to Psalm 119, our last passage for the night. Psalm 119, verses 65 through 68. Psalm 119, verse 65, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Folks, ultimately God's desire is that we would trust Him in everything. That's why Paul in Romans 8 says, if he was willing to give you his son, will he not also with him give you everything you need? But our tendency and our natural instinct is to profane his Sabbath. How do we profane his Sabbath? It has nothing to do with that day of the week, because that's not tied to us. We don't experience the rest that comes, not only from trusting in Jesus for salvation, but also in all things. He wants us to be the most peaceful, trusting people on the planet. That as things are getting crazier and crazier, and the nukes are starting to get built up all around the globe, and people are pointing missiles at each other all around, that when everybody's starting to get nervous about what's going on in Korea and all this stuff, that we would say, we're fine. God's got it. God's got it. And then people start to ask us to give reason for the hope within us. But you know what? If we sit around like the rest of the world with our eyes not on God, but our eyes on the storm and the eyes on what's going on in the world, and we're sitting around talking like everybody else about what are we going to do? Maybe we get a bunker. Maybe we get a shelter. Maybe we... Folks, take a deep breath. The Lord has got you. The Lord has got you. He's already proven it. He wants you to rest in Him for salvation. He wants you to rest in Him for everything else. Folks, let me ask you a quick question as we close tonight. Has God ever walked anybody here through a really hard time in the past and you came out on the other side 
amazed and praising him. Anybody here want to raise their hand in his testimony? Why do we think when the next one comes, he won't do it again? Is it tied to you and how good you've been? No. Why did he not wipe Israel off the map? For his name's sake and for his own glory, why will he never give up on you? Because he said he wouldn't, and for his name's sake and for his glory. Rest in that. And let's have some fun next week as we dive into verse 33. Thanks for coming. I love you all. We'll see you.